Thank you so much, Elder Wing, for that. And uh, he always has a sense of humour. And I will counsel him after this. <laughs> when it comes to marriage, we do have laughter. And oftentimes, it is nervous laughter. Because it's a great invitation to joy. But as we live out marriage, there is a deep experience of pain and disappointment. And that's why a series like this has to happen every year, ever so often, reminding us of God and His beautiful plan for us, made in His image, for singleness, as we heard last week, for marriage, as we hear this week, and for families, as we hear next week. Okay? So that's why we are putting it all together, and everything that we do here is intentional. So when was the last time you went to a wedding, attended a wedding? There have been fewer all around the world and here in Singapore. Um, and last year, especially, it was especially difficult. And for the couples who got married last year, we thank God for empowering them with tenacity to move forward because the restrictions were so great. The first one I did at the depth of the pandemic of COVID-19 was restricted to 10 people, and that included me as the solemnizer. That's how tight it was. But praise God, now it's opened up again. And so, when was the last time you went to a wedding? And you, what, what did you hear in a wedding sermon? You may hear in a wedding sermon something along these lines, right? It begins this way, or at least I begin this way. Dear family and friends, thank you for taking time and effort to join this couple on their sacred day for this, uh, for this sacred moment. Then I might say to the bride, you look stunning, as always, but more so today. Of course, I have to mean it. Lah, right? Then I'll turn to the bridegroom and say, you look stunned, as always, but more so today. <laughs> but more seriously, can we really say, what can we really say to two people who are about to take what we call the plunge in life? Will it be a melting pot or will it be a boiling pot of disharmony? What can you say to a couple getting married? What can we liken, compare marriage to? So let me ask you, which do you think is the most dangerous road in the world? The most dangerous road in the world pre-COVID, when you used to go in and out to Malaysia, may be the causeway to Johor Bahru. For those who are unfamiliar, what uh, links Malaysia and Singapore is this causeway. Perhaps the busiest bridge or causeway in the entire world where every day three to 400,000 people travel up and down. Could that be the most dangerous? You, if you've been caught in a jam, you could say so. If we as Singaporeans drive up to Malaysia for our holidays, maybe the North-South Highway is a dangerous highway. They, they say that the most dangerous road in the world is a 69-kilometre stretch between La Paz to Co... Let me read the name. Corioco in Bolivia. And why? Because each year, between 250 to 300 travellers on that 69 kilometre stretch die in car accidents. A year in Singapore, on average, I went to Google, about 120 deaths from car accidents. And how many kilometres of road do you think we have? We have close to 9,000 to 10,000 kilometres of road. But on a 69-kilometer stretch in Bolivia, every year it takes a toll about two, 300 people. Marriage is like traveling on a road. More specifically, it's like cycling on a road. 
More specifically, marriage is like a couple riding a tandem. You know what a tandem is? Two, two people riding one bicycle. Right? Marriage is like a couple riding a tandem on a, on a road. And how many will complete that journey? How many will not complete that journey? For newbie couples have little idea of what? Newbie couples have little idea how defeating an uphill part of the road would feel when you choose not to paddle together in a moment of difference. Immature couples don't know how frightening a downhill portion of the road would feel like when you choose not to put on the bricks in the heat of an argument. And it goes downhill. It spirals out of control very quickly. And couples would know after a while how treacherous a winding segment of the road would feel like when you proudly choose to stand your ground on a petty issue instead of standing it with one another on gospel issues that matter for all eternity. How do we travel and survive and arrive in marriage. Lifelong marriage, lifelong loving marriages. We survive and we thrive and we blossom by looking at Jesus and the church. And the key verse of this passage that we just read is Ephesians 5.31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If you know anything of the Bible, which is God's word, this is Paul quoting Genesis 2.24. So what is Paul doing here? Paul is like a, a superb, accomplished artist. And on one canvas, on one page, he's able to draw from left to right God's original blueprint when he started at creation. Then what happened at the fall and then what happens to men and women, husband and wife, when Jesus comes into the world and into our lives and into our marriages and into our families? So he's that master artist who is able to paint the marriage picture from creation to the fall and to redemption and ultimately to glory in eternity. So are you ready? This message will be in two parts. Firstly, Paul stretches back all the way to God's original purpose when he made men and women in his image and gave them the high calling to be married. And that comes from the canvas. If you read Genesis chapter 2, that comes from Genesis 2.18, is not good for man to be alone. That's not a statement about singleness. That's not a statement about aloneness. That's not a statement about loneliness. That's a statement that God's original purpose never included the solitary existence of men made in His image. He made men and women in His image. Men will always need women. Women will always need men. That's how we complement each other and fulfill the image of God. And so, what does that mean? You go back to this, there are three parts. And the three parts to this are vitally important for us to understand. Therefore, a man shall leave. We focus on leave, right? This is, 
We call it an acronym when we do our marriage preparation, our marriage enrichment classes. MPO, it used to be IPO, independence. But I've changed the word from independence. Let me explain that to you. The focus of leave, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. The focus is not on geographic leaving. That means if my parents live in the East Coast, I will live in the West Coast, as far from them as possible. If my parents live in the north side of Woodlands or Sembawang, I'll live as far from them as possible. That's not the biblical injunction from God. The focus on whether you are mature enough to start a household directly under God. It refers to spiritual maturity, not geographic leaving. Are you mature enough to leave? And as we explore that, as the Bible unfolds, that spiritual maturity can be boiled down to in so many ways. Are you spiritually mature enough to leave? Are you mentally mature enough to leave? Right. Are you relationally mature enough to leave? Are you emotionally in mature enough to leave? In many countries, including Singapore, in many cultures, including our Asian cultures, as it were, the number one criteria is to see whether you're financially stable, whether you're financially mature enough to get married. Financial maturity and financial stability is part of the equation, but it is not the main or the only criteria for leaving. The main criteria is definitely spiritual because it's the image of God. So what might this mean indeed? How do I test this out? Whether I'm mature enough to get married. So when, you, when Wing has a silly quarrel with his wife, or when they were dating, when you have a silly quarrel, where do you run to? When you have a petty fight about something, you wanted to watch this movie, she wanted to watch the other movie, you wanted to go to a hawker centre, she wanted to go to a restaurant, and yeah, you forgot my birthday, you forgot our first date, and it can blow up in our faces. Where do you run to when you differ on something? You can either run back to your parents, because your parents have been your number one, number one support system, or you might run to your friends, or you might run as a man to your man cave. I don't know what your man cave, what toys you have in your man cave, but many of us just run back to gaming until the brain bombs out, until the fight fades away, until the pettiness of the fight fades away. Fades away. Or you go into your woman, no woman cave, right? <laughs> woman bubble, <laughs> bubble tea. <laughs> Whenever you fight, right, have a difference, your first impulse is to run away from each other. A test of maturity is you run towards God. And then if Wing runs towards God, his wife Becky runs towards God, if Chris has a quarrel with Mona, I run towards God, I bow before him and ask for help and ask for forgiveness, and she, Mona does the same, then we can run back to each other. In your courtship and your dating, that's a very important test. All you who are married, it's too late. Should have tested it out, right? Told you to come to marriage preparation, didn't come, right? Told, uh, told you to come to marriage enrichment, didn't come, right? You think it's for other people. It's for us. And even after five years of marriage and after ten years of marriage, when you differ from each other, where do you run? If you do not run vertically back to God, 
back to the foot of the cross and the throne of the Lamb, you are running in the wrong direction. When you run horizontally to human help, you will never make progress in your relationship. It's running back to, to God that matters. So that is a test of our spiritual maturity, our mental maturity, our relational maturity, our emotional maturity. And then it moves on to what we call permanence. And what is this permanence? Right? And the permanence in that verse is hold fast to his wife. In the older language, you must leave your parents and you cleave to your wife. You leave and you cleave. You leave and you cleave. You know, you think of that, there's something divine, there's something almost miraculous. You have lived under the love and care, let's say normal parents. They are normal parents who fall on this bell curve, who love you, care for you. They are abnormal parents who don't care for you and may be abusive of you. And that's very sad. But let's say you fall under the, no the normalcy of good parents who love you and are sacrificial towards you and, and care for you. Do you know how miraculous it is to choose to get married? You are leaving the cocoon, the care, the unconditional love of your parents that you can totally rely on, though you mess up in life, to go and spend life with a stranger. In the ancient world, when this was written, there was no such thing called dating. There's no coffee and bangles or whatever that's out there. Right? You just are match made. My parents came from China, they were match made. The first time my father caught the full-on face of my mother was on the wedding night. He turned up and, oh no! <laughs> he turned up and he says, bingo! Really beautiful bride. He caught one side of her at the fish market right, in China. That's their love story. This dating thing is a new modern invention. Whoever God put you together, you think Joseph met Mary? I mean the parents of Jesus? They were betrothed by their parents to each other. And so this permanence is a very important thing. It's miraculous, it's divine that you would leave 25 years of living under your parents who love you unconditionally and you step into a relationship with a total stranger that in our modern day world, you dated one or two years, you met somewhere online, then you're going to entrust your life to this person. But that's God's blueprint for marriage. It is. The leaving and the cleaving. And so the permanence is reflecting of God's image of steadfast or covenant love. So when we take our vows here, we do not say, do you, Chris, take Mona? Will you, Chris, take Mona? It is volitional. You have to make up your mind. It's not, I do, I don't. It's, I will. I commit myself to you. So 9-11 was last Friday. September 11. 20 years have gone by and I myself have, my memory has faded a little bit. 20 years. Have you watched as younger folk what happened with September 11? That they hijacked four planes, four commercial planes. They flew one into the World Trade Center, right? Hit one tower. Totally went into the building, melted down the building. 
Then about half an hour later, the first plane struck at 8.46. And the fires that burned there, the temperature was 2,000 degrees. Second plane struck. The first plane struck, they thought, my goodness, it was an accident. Second plane struck, they knew it was a terrorist attack. The third plane struck the Pentagon, they knew they were at war. Somebody really hates us. And there was another plane in which the people overwhelmed and the plane crashed. You watch that. And one scene of the firemen. The firemen around New York are seasoned firemen. And they all arrive on the scene. Five minutes, three minutes, five minutes. Really, it's just... And they zoom in on this guy. And they look up at the building. He says, this building is not going to last. It's going to collapse. And then what do you think he did? He said, let's go in. He said, this building is not going to last. It's going to collapse. And he walked straight in with his men to save whoever they could save. That is, I will, not I do. A fireman could be the last person you see in your life. When they take up that job, it is I will. When we make our vows here under God, it's not I do, it's I will love you. Right? And permanence, by the grace of God, I will be committed to a loving and lifelong marriage to you, regardless of the differences or regardless of the difficulties. I thought I'd better spell that out. Or what it means that this will be a lifelong marriage of love. Because that's what God invites us to, that the marriage reflects the love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And when Jesus comes, it's between Him and the church. It's lifelong. You could have a lifelong relationship, but it's loveless. Why? Some children will tell you that. Oh, my parents are still together and never got divorced because they don't want the stigma and they did it for us. But there is no love in my parents' life. They sleep in separate rooms, they sleep in, on separate beds. I've known that from 10 years old. When you hear that, you hear the, the pain, the cry of a teenager that, yes, it's still an ongoing marriage, but it's empty of love. We're going through the motions, we're still eating lunch together, eating dinner together, but it's empty of meaning. We're going through the rituals, right? I'm still sending my son to school, sending my daughter to school, but it's no more relationship. There is nothing more, nothing takes the sail out of our hearts. Nothing punctures our, our spirit for living more than marriage being emptied out of love. So this is commitment to love each other, right? regardless of differences and difficulties. What differences may a couple have? You could have nature differences, bio-clock difference. So just across this room, let me do a survey, right? And um, all those who are watching out there, how many of you are early birds? Like to wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning, maybe earlier, 5 a.m. in the morning. How many of you are early birds? Early birds, hands up. All the early birds, hands up. Okay. How many of you are night owls? Night owls, hands up. Okay. My goodness, some of you are married to each other. Huh? That's a difference. <laughs> if you're an early bird, you wake at 5. By about 9, your energy level is almost zero. If you're a night owl, about 10 p.m., you are starting to wake. You are alert. <laughs> There's a huge difference, you know? 
that's going to affect many things, all the way from sexual intimacy to who is going to make breakfast or dinner, lunch or dinner for the children. So you marry, you've got to marry with your eyes wide open of your bio clocks. Then what could be difficulties? How do we prepare Wing and his wife for the difficulties of life? Who prepared me for my difficulties? What difficulties could you face? You could lose your job. You could lose your health. You could end up with prolonged illness in hospital. You could lose hope. You could lose heart. You could lose your way in life. That, those are difficulties. And so, in the vow that we make here, not I, Christopher Cha, will take you, Mona, to be my lawful wedded wife. By the grace of God, I, Christopher Cha, will take you, Mona, to, my, to be my lawful wedded wife. That's permanence. Apart from the permanent God and His permanent steadfast love, I've got zero chance of being faithful to my wife through differences and difficulties in life. And I never know what life is going to throw at me. That's very important to realise, don't you think? And so, please take note, there is differences in proposition. Um, I have a different view to you. Let's say a couple is talking about vaccination. I have a different view to you about vaccination. It is a propositional difference. Please make sure you know the difference between having propositional differences to dissent. Difference is propositional. Dissent is personal. I despise you. I don't respect you. I don't trust you. I actually look down on you and I don't like your family. Propositional difference is acceptable. God made us to be different. Dissent is bitterness. Thinking inferiority, superiority, inferiority, superiority. And once you go into inferiority, superiority, you are into, you are into irreconcilable differences. That the law of the land will give you license to get, to get divorced. So we've got to know. And with differences, please take note. I'll try to do uh, traffic light. Right? Differences is green light. We all have differences. Bio clocks, went to different school, you know, grew up in Hong Kong, me grew up in Singapore, right? marrying across races, marrying across cultures. There are differences. But differences do not have to become difficulties. And the difference in couples who have healthy marriages and unhealthy marriages, strong marriages and marriages that are on the rocks, are those who do not know how to handle differences. And every difference they have, from nature to nurture, escalates into a difficulty. And difficulties, you add one difficulty, two difficulties, three difficulties, will add up to the red light called divorce. Where we come, come in as brothers and sisters in Christ, as pastors, as, as elders or deacons, as brothers and sisters in Christ helping you, is to tell you that it's okay to have differences. They don't have to escalate into difficulties. They don't have to, right? And so, how do we do this? Because each one responds differently, right? I keep giving this example. 
If you own a car and you drive, somebody overtakes you rudely, or you're lining up for something and somebody cuts the queue in front of you, how many of you will get upset when people cut the queue in front of you? I just had one. I went to, uh, where was that? Gimmo, right? Gimmo, uh, one, two months ago, I was lining up for this thing and this older lady, right, just inching in front of me. Then, ah, yeah, I want to tell auntie, don't want to tell auntie. Then I remember, I'm pastor, don't tell auntie. La. <laughs> but I actually remember the story. Do you hear that one, the story? Where somebody cut in the queue in the Philippines, they were lining up to buy this lottery. And this man had been waiting for a long time and somebody cut in in front of him, right? Guess what? He won the lottery. You didn't catch the joke, right? He was lining up, somebody cut the queue, and because of that, he won the lottery. He won millions of dollars. So after I read that story, anybody want to cut the queue, please cut the queue. Because I might win the lottery in some way. <laughs> some people get upset with that. You're very triggered by that. And it spins. It spins out of control. Some people are laid-back people. By all means, Auntie Ching, please carry on. A difference doesn't have to be a difficulty. You just need humility and prayerfulness to work that through. And where does that take us? Where does that take us? I, hope I haven't lost myself yet <laughs> in this thing. And this is what he refers to, oneness, the third thing. So not just maturity to leave, not just permanence, but oneness. And why is oneness so great? Because the rest of the Bible will play this out. That Father, Son and Holy Spirit, though all three are different persons, they are all equally God. And within God, there's equality. And within God, there's an ordering. The Father will send the Son. The Son never sends the Father anywhere. And the Father and Son will send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit never tells the Son or the Father to do anything. There's equality. And for want of a better word, there is hierarchy. And that hierarchy functions for orderliness. And men and women made in God's image, there's equality. Men and women are equal in creation, equal in essence, equal in substance, but differentiated in role. That God created us to be head of the households and women to be helper as part of this journey. So that's important for us to realise. So when Paul alludes to this, he stretches back. When God created us, he created us as such. So now, as we look forward, what's he actually saying in Ephesians? Do you have your Bibles open with you? In Ephesians, he says this. It begins with 5.22. Wives, submit to your husbands as in the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, who is, is head of the wife, as Christ the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. And so as he stretches backwards to God's original blueprint, he now finds the link to Jesus and what it means for wife and husband to be in Christ. Let me see whether I've got the slides for this. Okay. Whether I've got it right. Okay. And what does this mean? At creation, God created the husband as head of the household, the wife as a helper. And what did they share between the head, the man and the woman? They had God binding them together, God calling them to this marriage, them fulfilling, and this is the beautiful oneness that they have in God. The purpose, the person of God, the purposes of God, a beautiful oneness. 
But you will read in Genesis 3.16 that after they rebel against God, this is what happens. That the man will rule over his wife and the wife will rebel against the husband. The word there is her desire will be for her husband, but it's pejorative. So after the fall, the husband seeks to lord over the woman. Up to this point, Adam had been given the mandate to rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and over every living creature. God never gave him the mandate to rule over his wife. So for every man who is worth your fallen salt, your sinful salt, your DNA of Adam that you inherited, you would sense this all the way from courtship into marriage and see with your father and mother and your uncles and aunties, in your, your fallen nature, your instinctive fallen nature as a man is to rule over the woman. And we cannot lord over her, finally you might resort to violence. That's your instinctive nature by the fall. And what's the instinctive nature of women after the fall? The instinctive nature of women after the fall is to rebel. So a beautiful oneness to ugly separateness, ugly two-ness, ugly selfishness. Now, what they share between the husband and wife is no longer God who binds them together, God who calls Adam and Eve, but sin in between them. And what you're finding in Ephesians 5 is this. He traces the storyline of this to what? Because of Christ and His love for the church, it's now traced to the husband loves sacrificially, the wives submit willingly, and what binds them together is Jesus coming as Redeemer. Redeeming persons and redeeming relationships. And so at the heart of Jesus' work is to grant us back this beautiful oneness, this beautiful one fleshness. Christ, the head of the body. Christ, the bride to the bridegroom. Theologically, that's where it's headed. And that's really wonderful. You know what that means? Did you hear, did you listen to Sam Aubrey last week? And what did he say? That marriage actually shows us the shape of the gospel. But singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. And the shape of the gospel, do you notice? The Bible begins with a wedding. The Bible ends with a wedding. Jesus will come in Revelation 21 as a bridegroom to receive his bride. That's very important for us to realize. Wedding bells at the beginning, wedding bells at the end, this one fleshness is so great because it totally reflects God. And more of that as we end. And so what does that mean for wives to be submissive? For wives to be submissive, it is the wife's part to do what? The wife's part to keep the beautiful redemption, to keep the beautiful reconciliation that Christ has come to purchase for us. So this comes from Ephesians. And Ephesians chapter 2 actually says this, that we are at war with God and at war with one another. And God in His perfect time sent Jesus as peacemaker. So allow me to read Ephesians 2 for you. Ephesians 2 actually says this. What does it say of Jesus? 
Allow me to read that if you have Bibles. Ephesians 2.14 For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing his flesh, the law with his commandments and regulations. And so, what do we have? He came and preached peace to those who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by one Spirit. Whatever you do not know about Jesus' work, it's peacemaking work, it's reconciliation. So one way to understand the whole Bible story, one way to understand Christianity is it's war and peace. Before God sent Jesus into the world, you and me are at war. Will you agree with that? That from the moment you wake to the moment you sleep, we all struggle with war in our hearts. And where does the war begin by the time, from the time you wake up? You wake up, I do not know where you go first, but a most likely place in your flat, in your condo, in your house, you go to the toilet or the washroom. When you go to the toilet, the war may begin there, right? You may have toothpaste war. You may have toilet seat war. You may have, my God, my God, are you still in their war? Um, who didn't flush war? Who didn't replenish the toilet roll? You all know how to use but don't know how to put back, right? You never realise that one location of your home, your flat, your condo, your house could be a site of a war zone. Wait till you move from the toilet to the kitchen. Who didn't wash their cups? Who left the stove on? Who didn't wipe the table? You never knew uh, your house could be a war zone, every area. Then I haven't talked about when you travel out of the house, of course, now we don't travel a lot, but soon it's going to resume. You used to have road rage, travel rage, MRT rage, driving rage. You arrive in school and you don't like your friends, you don't like your teachers, you arrive at, at office, you don't like your bosses. Now it's so good, you can just tune them off with virtuality, right? Then you've got supermarket wars. We, have, we carry this terrifying capacity to wage war in our hearts. And so when the Bible says that Jesus has come as peacemaker, He has accomplished peace on the cross. He pronounces peace into your hearts. It's a very huge thing. So it caused God, His Son, to reconcile us to Him. The next time you and me are most tempted to have another petty quarrel. Please pause to realize how much it costs God to save you from your warmongering heart in every place of your flat, of your home. It costs God, His Son, to end the war in your heart. So, wives here, the calling to submit, this is your part to keep the precious peace we have been given in Christ Jesus. And so when wives submit, right, submission is to keep this precious peace. What is the practical implication? So for Christian wives, you wake up. Every day you have to choose whether you want to be a marriage breaker or a marriage builder. You have to choose whether you want to be a helper or a hindrance. You have to choose whether you want to be a competitor or a compliment. 
You, want, you, want, you have to choose whether you're embarking on willing submission or unwilling submission. Drag your feet submission. And for willing submission, there is no other model but Jesus who didn't drag his feet to the cross. He actually went to the, cro to the cross by his own obedience to the Father. So this submission is very important. When a Christian wife submits to her husband, she's actually displaying two things. Firstly, she accepts God's order of creation, equal but differentiated in roles, equal in substance, equal in creation, equal, equal in redemption, but differentiated in roles, as is here in Ephesians 5. She's agreeing that God is wise and good, no matter how silly the submission to a husband may feel like at that moment. So that's vitally important for us to realise. Secondly, when a Christian wife submits to her husband, she accepts Christ's headship over her. How? By accepting her husband's headship over her. It's the same chain of command. If we choose to break our submission to our earthly husbands, we break our obedience to our heavenly Lord. It's a mega statement to make, but that's what I think Paul is actually saying. So submission is agreeing with God at two points, that God is wise and good in created us, creating us equal but different. It's, and it might feel silly so for Mona to submit to me when she thinks that the decision I'm making is action, but she believes in God's good pattern and she looks at the Lord Jesus and she looks at how the church must submit and she says, yeah, by God's grace, I will try. I will attempt willing submission. For the husband, what is the command? For the husband, husbands, you are to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. When you read this, we know this portion is the husband's role is to love the wife sacrificially, just as Christ loved the church. And when did Christ love us? We are the church. He loved us when we were still unlovable. When we were still unlovely. I want to ask you, which part of the day are you most unlovely or unlovable? I've told you this story many times, right? When my daughter was very young, I woke up one morning, I didn't take my shower, didn't comb my hair, didn't brush my teeth. I sat there, I don't know how old she was, she was three, four years old. She looked at me and said, you're so ugly. <laughs> that morning, I wasn't very lovely to her, right? I didn't shower, I didn't comb my hair yet. And for a three, four-year-old, that's... When are you most unlovable? We are unlovable because we are rebels, we are sinful, we are selfish, we are stubborn, and we deny that we need God and we need Jesus. But Christ loved us when we were still unlovable and unlovely. That's sacrificial love. So what does that mean for us as husbands? If you read this, it goes on to say, in the same way, that's the theology, in the same way, verse 28, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves, his own, loves himself, and no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of one body. So, 
he's telling men of 2,000 years ago, men 2,000 years ago didn't need to treat women, they never treated women as equal. They've treated women not as persons to be loved, but goods and services to be used. It was a totally patriarchal world. So when Paul writes this, husbands, you're to love your wives as you love your own body. All men, all the men here, all the husbands. Can you look at your own body? Just follow me, my example. Look at your own body and say to yourself, I hate my body. I'm going to starve it. I'm going to beat it. I'm going to abuse it. I'm going to neglect this body. No, right? As a man from young, you were told you are very important. You are more important than women. In many cultures, that was mistakenly taught. And you know how to look after yourself. And Paul is actually saying, you know how to look after your wife? You look after your wife as you look after your own body. Your wife is now number one, not your body. She is number one after Christ. That's very important. So in practical terms, what does it mean? One scholar said, a husband's role is to provide endless, ceaseless care for the wife. Endless, that's what the head is. That what, what do you think this is? It's thinking of how to provide endless, ceaseless care for the body. So if I'm listening to Jesus as my Saviour and my Lord, I wake each day, I go on my knees and Lord, help me. What does it mean to love Mona sacrificially? What does it mean to care for her? What does it mean to protect her? What does it mean to affirm her? So a Christian's husband's love must be like that. So in a sense for us as men, marriage is an invitation not to live. Marriage is an invitation to die to self, to serve our spouses. We die to our self-rights to serve them. So in practical terms, a husband's love, like Christ's love, how would you describe Christ's love, you see? Sacrificial, unconditional. Loved us when we were unlovable and unlovely. What do you call that kind of love? It's steady love. It's steadfast love, right? In Singlish, steady love. This love is steady love. Come rain, come shine, it will still be there. If a husband's love is covenantal love, personified and fulfilled and perfected in Jesus, and it is, then a, hus a Christian husband's love is not dependent on his wife's looks, is not dependent on the wife's moods, is not dependent on the wife's response, is not dependent on anything. A husband's love is dependent on Christ's love for the church. So no matter how Mona is responding to me today, Sometimes it triggers me. I must still go back to Jesus and say, Oh Lord, help me to love her with this kind of love. A Christian's husband's love is always there. And as a Christian husband, what did Christ do? Christ did everything to win our salvation, to make us feel secure in our salvation. And we, as Christian husbands, I think have a role to play to make our wives feel secure that she's number one after God, after Christ. Which means, in practical terms, a Christian husband treats his wife as she's not the same importance as my work, she's not the same importance as my hobbies, 
She's not the same importance as my buddies. She's not the same importance. So I had a, a Christian leader come up to me, got married very early on, and the wife was saying to him, um, he, he was a sportsman, right? Loved sports. And he played sports almost every day. So after getting married, he still wanted to play sport almost every night, his basketball or his soccer. So the wife wasn't happy with that. You're always out with your buddies. I know it's a healthy thing. So he came, so what, what should I do? Right? Look after my body or look after my wife? Quite clear, right? So maybe lesson from six nights of sports to three nights. Lah. Can, ah? cannot. Some things we are entrenched in, you know. You have to die to those things. You have to die to those things for the good. She's not the same importance as your work, not the same importance as your hobbies, not the same importance as your buddies, not the same importance as your children. And in Asian cultures, when the children come, the importance of the wife drops a few notches. Actually, it drops so much, you can't find her. She's gone into the bottomless pit because the children become number one. The children become so important, they are now the inner circle. Even Jesus has been thrown out into orbit. God didn't give you children to forget God. It's very important. And to make our wives feel secure, you must never compare. Never compare her cooking to your mother's cooking. Never compare her dressing to your previous girlfriend's dressing. Never compare, never compare la full stop, period. And wives are cluey enough to know you may not compare with your words, but you can see from your eyeballs and your body language that they are not up to scratch. You are not happy with something in me. Never compare. It's a very important thing that I must settle in my heart on my knees with God. So you do everything to promote the health of this relationship. And Jesus didn't wait for the church to say sorry. Jesus came and died on the cross, took God's wrath for us. So what does that mean? It means a few things as we end. Please embark, don't embark on capo theology. Capo theology, wrong question to ask as a husband is to ask our wives, why are you so unsubmissive? Right question to ask is, have I been loving towards her? Wrong question to ask for a Christian wife is, why are you so loving? Right question to ask is, have I been submissive? If both are not asking the capo questions, both are focusing on their initiative and their ministry under God, that marriage has a greater chance of blossoming. When we ask the capo question, we are focusing and judging the other person's failures and faults. When I'm focusing on myself as wing prayed, a beautiful prayer, oh, help me God, I don't know how to love my wife. I'm very prone to being selfish. We men are pretty hopeless at what? We men are pretty hopeless at seeking the welfare, the worth and pleasure of our wives. We are horribly good at seeking our own welfare, worth and pleasure from the boardroom where we do business to the bedroom where we consummate our marriages. The Christian husband who follows Jesus is one who prays on his knees, then rises to his feet, believing in Jesus, 
that the worth, the welfare, and the, and the well-being, and the blossoming of my wife is the most important thing in my life. Where are you going to find this kind of men and women? You find them in Christ Jesus. Only if both are abiding in Christ Jesus. So the Bible does begin with a wedding. It does end with the wedding of Christ and the church. It's so good to be one. So good to be one. But Satan will work over time to drive the wedge between you and me. He will sing the praises of the goodness of separateness, the goodness of two-ness, the goodness of selfishness. Marriage is under attack. Families are under attack. And next week, we'll take a look at that. Do you believe that? Marriages are under attack. Families are under attack. The Church of Jesus Christ is under attack. And we need Jesus at every point to overwhelm. And I say to you, after 34 years of marriage, you come to Christ again and again, and you empty yourself at the foot of the cross, He will fill you again and again. And your marriages will get better and better, richer and stronger, but only in Christ, as you praise the goodness of this. We're going to stand and pray together. It doesn't take very much for us to, to confess and to admit that the marriage road is a perilous road. Whether we are cycling uphill, going downhill, in the heat of a moment under Satan, things can spiral out of control. And there's everything within us that will not want to do this together. We thank you for your beautiful purposes in creation, that you made us men and women in your image, and you gave us the high calling and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. May we understand afresh the beauty of maturity to leave, the beauty of permanence, that we can love each other by your grace, and the beauty of oneness. But we acknowledge that this beauty can only be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So we turn to you, Lord Jesus, and ask that wives would learn to submit by looking at how the church willingly submits to you. And that we husbands can learn to love sacrificially and to love our wives as we love our own bodies, being concerned, providing endless, ceaseless care for them. And even when we have fallen short, and all of us would say, beginning myself, we have fallen short, we can empty ourselves at the foot of the cross only to be filled with you again and again, with your redeeming love and steadfast love, and bear witness unto you for your glory, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.